Welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. Today we're talking about episode 10 in our current series, The State versus Greg Lance. That episode is called Putnam Pit. And if you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen. A lot happens. We will be right here waiting for you when you get back. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I host the True Crime Review podcast, Crime Writers On, and I'm one of the audio editors in the Undisclosed team. And with me today is Rabia Chaudhry, the New York Times bestselling author of a non-story and lead reporter on this series. Hey again, Rabia. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Also with us is Colin Miller, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Hello, Colin. Hello. How are you? Good. It's nice to talk to you this week. Also nice to talk to our very special guest, Madeline Barron. Uh, One of my favorite things about this Madeline Barron bio, by the way, is it's like really long. But I think that everyone knows that Madeline Barron is the host and reporter behind the greatest true crime podcast of all time, In the Dark and In the Dark Season 2. Hello, Madeline. It is wonderful to talk to you. Good to be here. Now, of course, Madeline's reporting has also appeared on NPR. She's won lots of journalism awards. She's got lots of bona fides. But Madeline, before we start the show, I just wanted to get a quick uh, true crime podcast update because I do know that there was just like an expected development in Winona uh, in the case around Curtis Flowers. And that was that Doug Evans, the DA who, you know, Supreme Court struck down uh, his entire prosecution of the case, basically, because of his uh, practices of stacking juries with white jurors, was once again reelected uh, to be the prosecutor in that community. Um, what are your thoughts on that? That was that was expected, right? Right. Well, and the reason it was expected, as you know, is because he was running unopposed. Right. So even, you know, and, and that was really common for him, actually. He's only had an opponent once since he first won um, the race for DA. And so, yeah, he unsurprisingly received something like 93% of the vote. He did have a number of write-ins and um, about 400 people wrote in someone other than Doug Evans, I think, um, by the latest count. But, you know, obviously he was always going to win. And it really, you know, what's interesting to me about that race beyond, of course, my interest in it because of the Flowers case, but it's just, you know, when we hear a lot about progressive prosecutors running for office and winning, um, like in San Francisco, um, just a few days ago, Chesa Boudin winning, um, Larry Krasner, of course, in Philadelphia. But in a lot of places in the United States, like Winona and central Mississippi, these races are uncontested. Right. And so even though there's like this national push towards a different type of prosecutor in our country, that really ha- does not seem to have filtered down to a lot of places. Right. No, that's true. And I think that the constituents there, I mean, they, for all the reporting that you've done and for all that the podcast world knows about Doug Evans and his career as a prosecutor, uh, down there, they know what they know, which is that he's the guy who runs on, you know, cracking down on crime. And, you know, he's, as far as the citizens there are concerned, like we heard a lot of them on your podcast, doing a great job fulfilling the promise of his campaigns, right? Yeah, I mean, depends who you ask. So, you know, certainly that seems to be the view amongst majority of white people in that district. Um, but his district is only slightly uh, majority white. And so certainly talking to African-Americans in his district, they ha- often have a very different view of Doug Evans. And really, like, we just don't know because in a way, like an election functions like a popularity poll. We just never had w- an accurate one for Doug Evans right. in years, at least. So, you know, it is possible that people feel differently about him now, regardless of race. But we, you know, we haven't seen that. We don't have a way way to do to find that out. The other thing, too, is that, you know, who's going to run against him is a real practical challenge, too. So even if you um, wanted to support a candidacy of someone other than Doug Evans, like there just aren't a lot of lawyers in that area. And then, you know, what lawyers exist, you know, maybe they just like their current job. Right. um, And they don't want to be the district attorney. They want to be a a lawyer in private practice or a civil attorney or something. So, yeah, it is, you know, that does come into play, too. Could you imagine, Robbie and Colin, like being the lawyer that follows Doug Evans in that office and and what you know you'd be walking into? Like that would be challenging, right? I don't know. I mean, it would be challenging. But I mean, I look at what Krasner did. He walked into an extremely challenging situation where you've got this huge department that has had a history of corruption of decades of corruption that extended not, not like beyond the DA's office into, you know, the the police department. I mean, like it and into the political system. And it, it so 
yeah, it's a challenge, but I am shocked that the defense attorneys in that area are not like, gosh, our best bet to get justice for our clients and to have fairness for us and, you know, in all our work is for one of us to run and beat this guy. I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Right. One thing, Rabia, is like, there's not really, I mean, amongst at least some of the defense attorneys in that area, you do not get the sense that they are really like an opposition, in opposition to Doug Evans. Like, when I sat in some of the- like, That's shameful. That is shameful. <laughs> Sorry. It was basically like, you know, here's here's a guy from the DA's office. Here's a court-appointed public defender. And like, they're just hashing out these cases. And like, the clients are not really at the center of what's taking place. Like, these are people that have known each other for a really long time. So it's not like, you know, it, it would be really out of character for a lot of these public defenders in that area to like publicly denounce the DA or even like publicly criticize the DA. Hmm. Um it's just not how things work down there. Right, because right. they become part of the system. They have become absorbed into the corrupt system. And so that's maybe a private criminal defense attorney. I, mean, I, I, I get it. I get it. And the thing is, if they lose, then they're kind of like branded forever, <laughs> right? Uh, and they're going to be mistreated. And I know that's part of the fear. But then you never disrupt the system. And somebody has to. Right. I guess I'll have to, I'll have to move down there. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sure that would be a, a, a fun experience for you, uh, living in Winona and having to have these kind of conversations all the time, all yeah. day, every day. And Baltimore's got its own problems, so I'll just yes, with. it does. It you does. Just run for Baltimore, DA. <laughs> I got to move there first. Then that's the thing. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about this week's episode of Undisclosed. In this week's episode, the team examines three key state officials involved in Greg Lance's prosecution. District Attorney General William Gibson, not to be confused with the sci-fi author William Gibson, medical examiner Dr. Charles Harlan, and TBI agent Robert Krofsick. The episode opens with a look at the Putnam Pit, an online publication that for years ran as a self-proclaimed underground watchdog press holding city and county officials to account for misdeeds and unethical conduct. We heard from founder and editor of the Putnam Pit, Jeff Davidian, who began investigating Darlene Eldridge's murder in Cookville after meeting her mother in a chance encounter. According to Darlene's family, she had been involved in an affair with her boyfriend and the local district attorney, Gibson himself. Shortly after her murder, Darlene's brother Fabian was arrested for attempting to murder her boyfriend, Robert Fahey. D.A. Gibson appointed two private attorneys to prosecute the attempted murder, but alarmingly, both of these attorneys also represented the boyfriend, Fahey, in a civil suit against Fabian at the same time they were prosecuting him. Gibson's unethical conduct in the Fahey-Eldridge matter didn't affect his career, but a few years later, his inappropriate communications with two defendants resulted in him losing his law license. Medical examiner Charles Harlan, who conducted the autopsies on Victor and Alec Kolesnikow and testified at Greg's trial, became nationally infamous when 2020 did an expose on his decades of malpractice. Harlan also eventually lost his professional license. TBI agent Krofsik had a stellar professional career on paper, but his conduct on the ground was riddled with questionable behavior, including witness intimidation and likely fabricating evidence. It may well have been Krofsik at the Herrick Farm in late August 1998 at the burn pile that left behind the bullets law enforcement found in their search the next day. The episode ends by briefly running through some possible suspects, a mystery Russian man that lived with the victims, a local mayor and a disgruntled property buyer who had pulled a gun on Victor the year before he was murdered. Investigating cases of wrongful convictions is my passion, but even I need the occasional break. So when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is an extremely fun game that will soon become your new obsession. And while Best Fiends is challenging puzzles that I love, it's a casual game that anyone can play, although it's made for adults. You can spend as much or as little time as you'd like in the game. I'm currently on level 50, and it's a great game to unwind with between researching stressful cases. Part of this is solving the puzzles, but another part are the characters. A bunch of bugs you try to collect as you progress through the game through levels of increasing difficulty. Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike other puzzle games out there. Plus, Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. Also. Best Fiends doesn't require an internet connection to play, so it's great for traveling and you can play it anywhere. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. 
Best Fiends is a five-star rated mobile puzzle game with over 100 million downloads globally. You can download it for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. All right, so first I want to talk about this character, Davidian, that uh, you introduced us to in the episode. He is quite a character because even though he does have some, like, actual journalism creds, I did look him up, (laughs) he has become, like, this thorn uh, character with, like, this local blog, not dissimilar to kind of like we heard about in S-Town, you know, those sort of, like, local online forums that get people all, like, throwing their, you know, opinions willy-nilly and sort of, like, talking about the goings-on. What are your impressions of him, Robbie? Is he legit? Is he fringe? Like, what should we be thinking about Davidian? You know, um, I I feel like the answer is yes to both of those questions. <laughs> and so I wanted to actually kind of t- talk about how I f- why I contacted him initially. Yeah. Um, so I was I, what I really wanted to do was find somebody who was like on the crime beat in the late nineties for the for the local paper, which is the Herald Citizen of Cookville. And I found I found the lady. And then I looked through all of her articles to see, like, you know, how much coverage, what it was, you know, the kind of reporting she did on the cases. And then I, I came across an article. And when I was researching her, trying to figure out where she was and what her deal was, I found an article about her or a blog post about her on the Putnam Pit. It was an article that talked about how she had started writing about some corruption in the DA's office and then her house got shot up. And when I looked it up, it actually had happened. Her house hmm. did get shot up. And Davidian's theory was that she was basically intimidated um, by officials. And so she stopped writing anything critical. And and his challenge kind of was like, see if you can find anything she writes after that, that's remotely critical or questions the office. And you don't, to be honest. And um, I also had, I I did reach out to her a number of times to ask her, you know, about comments about the story, about the DA, uh, about Gibson, about Kropsik, and she just wouldn't respond. And so that's how I got to him. So then I reached out to him. I thought, well, I don't know who this person is, but there's that's like the extent of media <laughs> in Cookville. You've got the Herald Citizen and you've got the Putnam Pit. Really? Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, and, you know, I think the look of the website obviously is really kind of hairy. Um, it's a bit off-putting. In it, but I, I think there's a seed of truth in a lot of what he says. It's just the way he goes about it. I think obviously, you know, like using a speeding ticket to – subpoena like everybody and their mother um, <laughs> for documents in an unrelated matter. Um, you know, it was difficult. But this was a pursuit of his for years. And uh, he did eventually give up, though. It's not something he's working on anymore. Hmm. Now, Madeline, you know, as a journalist, don't your like, when you hear about a guy like this, like my ears sort of prick up and I'm just sort of like, it's a tendency to get kind of eye rolly when you hear about someone like this who has one of these like independent blog type journalism projects. And some sometimes I have found working in the newsroom I work in, you get a tip from somebody like this and there is something to it. And it just means you have to do like more reporting so that you're not relying on the reporting of somebody who in the public forum can look unreliable. Have you ever had an experience with that? I mean, I certainly not exactly like with someone like Davidian, but I have had experiences where sources have come forward, not in in the dark, but prior to that, who are quite of questionable reliability, like you're saying, and then you've got to see, okay, can I, did this, is what they're alleging actually true? And how can I prove that? Because I can't rely on them for it. You know, are there like public records I could request that would show what that what they're saying is true? Um, you know, there's also like an issue, just listening to like some of his allegations on this episode, where it's like, I wonder if he's easy to be, like, if in a way he's both like helping expose some alleged corruption, but also maybe allowing it to continue because if, if he doesn't have like a real firm grasp on what he publishes versus what he doesn't, it would be easy for people to just dismiss even things that were true that he was trying to point out. Um, like, was there a claim? Did I get this right? That like the, somebody had like babies buried on their property. Okay. <laughs> it came up in that deposition tape, right? Yeah. It was a headline of one of his blogs and it was, I mean, if you, if you can watch the, uh, the, that deposition actually on YouTube, but if you look up a deposition, William Gibson, but um, it, it wasn't meant to be literal. It was that basically the Gibson's office was mishandling the opioid crisis and children were dying because of it. And, and, and that actually gets kind of unfolded in the deposition as Davidian's attorney's like, okay, let's, is that what he really meant? That's not what he really meant, but you know. Hmm. 
<laughs> well, it's a it's an incendiary headline. That's sure. for sure. It's not one that would make it past an editor. <laughs> <laughs> That's what blogs are for. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, now, Darlene's murder was allegedly carried out with arson using an accelerant. That certainly got my attention. Is there some connection here to the Glesnikow case, or is that just coincidence? You know, okay, yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. There's a, there's a witness that we are going to – actually, we're going to hear from him in next week's episode. And he has everything to do with the prime suspect in the case. And as he was being questioned about what he knew about the Klesnikow murder, out of the blue – he mentioned Darlene's murder, like completely out of left field, had nothing to do with what he was being asked about. But he managed to make a connection between that murder and people, some people, connection to people involved in the Klesnikow murder. There is something there. It is also a small town, so it's almost like who isn't connected to who. Um, we've heard that there are connections. We just have not been able to verify it. But what this witness said out of nowhere when he wasn't prompted, we weren't talking about it. It's just kind of like haunting me a bit. And because we wanted to keep him on track for what we were looking at, we kind of let it go. But I, I do want to go back and revisit it. Even if the series ends, I might have to go track, track down what he was talking about. But we'll talk about that on Monday's episode. Colin, what did you think of this conduct around hiring these private prosecutors? Obviously, there's all sorts of conflicts of interest stuff in there. But this is literally only the second time I've heard of something like this since I've been listening to and covering true crime, even reporting on true crime. Um, and on Syed's case is the only other case. Is this a thing or is this super unusual? Uh, am I wrong to think that this is super unusual? Uh, it, it's usual enough that there's actually an ABA, an American Bar Association standard that deals with the appointment of a private attorney as a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And so if you look, the standards has, there's a rule that says, if a particular matter requires the appointment of a special prosecutor from outside the office, adequate funding for this purpose should be made available. A private attorney who is paid by or has an attorney-client relationship with an individual or entity that is a victim of the crime charge or has a personal or financial interest or has demonstrated an impermissible bias should not be permitted to serve as prosecutor in that matter. So there are ABA regulations that deal with this, and you see it you know, somewhat, not that frequently, but it's frequent enough that they have these standards in place to govern the behavior of these private attorneys acting as prosecutors. So what do you think about this whole thing where they were also involved in the civil suit at the same time they're doing this prosecution? Like, that's not cool, right? And that's, that, that seems pretty directly covered by that standard I just cited where, right, it seems a pretty clear conflict of interest here for them to be serving on the one hand as a prosecutor and yet also have this other matter they're handling. And so, yes, yeah, certainly this seems like a violation of the ABA standards. Colin, can I ask you, did that uh, standard arise? Like, do you know when that was kind of um, drafted? I wonder if it actually came out of like the situation or afterwards. Yeah, I'm not sure on the history of that to see. Yeah, I'd be interested to see when it arose and how it arose. But I'm not someone who teaches professional responsibility, so I don't know the history of that to see when that arose and what the origin was. Got it. So uh, you noted in the episode that Alan Dershowitz, obviously famous defense attorney, now famous for some different reasons in today's headlines, but for a long time um, really involved, a very high-profile attorney involved in some of the most interesting appeals, really, across the country, some high-profile cases and some lower-profile cases like this one. He got Fabian's conviction overturned. Uh, what happened to him then? I'm assuming in this note uh, that you sent me, you didn't mean Alan Dershowitz because we know no. what happened to him. <laughs> What happened to Fabian after that? Yeah, so it's interesting the way Alan Dershowitz actually got involved. Um, Fabian Eldridge, th their family is Jewish, and, you know, they are a very, very small minority in that part of the country. And they believe that there was there was some anti-Semitism at play in all of this, in the sister's murder and then his arrest for this attempted murder. And they, I believe, brought in an organization, I think it's called the Jewish Defense Fund, if I, if I remember correctly. And the Jewish Defense Fund then brought in Alan Dershowitz. And um, I, although they didn't, I don't think it came up in the appeal like it wasn't an, they didn't bring it up as an issue but they did believe that this there was like anti-semitism at play here so uh well fabian's conviction got overturned and that was it they never like they just dropped the case uh they did not bring new charges against him hmm. and and as far as his sister's concerned nobody has ever been charged with her murder hmm. now madeline when i heard these stories about gibson 
cultivating these relationships with people who were uh, inmates or people who were being held, defendants in cases, that gave me like a little bit of deja vu. It sort of made me think about the Doug Evans uh, serial witness Cookie Holman situation in, in the case he reported on. What did you think when you heard about these relationships he was cultivating with defendants? He's like long-term relationships in writing. I was confused as to why he was, you know, the the one man who he's writing to like in a religious way, but also in a like, hey, I'm going to help you out kind of way. Like, why, why was he doing that? Good question. Anyone know? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I have no idea. I don't know if it's... So I do think there was some history in which what happened was there was some kind of program, I think, at the prison where they had, and, and I have to double check this because I, I read something about this a while ago. They had some kind of program at the prison where they like had kind of like an ongoing sports program. And I think Gibson you know, cross paths with Adams during that program somehow. And then at that time, Adams was going through his own kind of like being reborn as a Christian type of thing. And I don't know if that's what got like pulled Gibson in. And so he he was just like, I think this guy, you know what I mean? Like, I think it was a redemption story for him. I really think that's what it was. I mean, when I was originally told about this, there were some suggestions of other kinds of like, oh, maybe he like, you know, had some kind of a sexual interest in the guy. I mean, I, I don't see any evidence of anything like that at all. It just seems a lot of it was just a lot of spiritual and moral support. But I mean, and I mean, any kind of contact would be improper. That wouldn't be as alarming, but, but his clear, like, I'm going to basically manipulate Patterson to get you. I mean, that was the, the big problem here. Why? I don't know. But he said he prayed over it. I guess God told him to. Hmm. Yeah, I had questions after I heard that part. I also had questions about Charles Harlan, the medical examiner. Can we just talk about some of those instances of oh malpractice gosh. that you talked about? <laughs> there was a thing with a dog. Oh, God. <laughs> I literally, when I was editing the episode, had to go back, and I was like, did I actually just hear that? Was that an allegation? Did that actually happen? Can you just like, just remind us what happened, and then like we can talk about it? Yeah, it happened. It uh, He let his dog into the autopsy room as he was performing an examination, and the dog ate some of the body parts. And the reason we know this happened is because it had an impact on <laughs> the prosecutor actually prosecuting the case that that evidence was related to. Um, and then I believe it was in the hearings to get him, I mean, his license stripped, is when the the state prosecutor was like, like this is like that was in his actual evidence is that this happened in this case. So that's how we know it happened. Madeline, what were your thoughts when you heard that section about this medical examiner who oh my gosh. I mean, I think the dog was only one thing. There were so the many dog things. was only one thing. There was like the faxes leading up to it where he was asked to <laughs> confirm whether the person was dead. And it got increasingly ridiculous until he finally like said like a gross thing about their body. I mean Yeah. And then, no, when I heard the dog thing, I actually just, like, said out loud in my apartment, like, oh, come on. <laughs> um, I mean, can you imagine being the family member of the person who was being autopsied and finding yeah. that out? Yeah. There's so many horrifying stories, but the one where the widow of this man was like, I specifically don't want Harlan touching him. And when Harlan finds out, he's just like, oh, she said that he's like, no, he demanded the body be delivered to him. He conducted the autopsy, and even before the lab results were back, he immediately destroyed, out of sheer spite, destroyed the man's organs, all of them, so nobody could do another perform another autopsy. It was oh my just, god! It was shocking. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, Colin. I know you'll remember this: the uh, blood spatter expert uh -huh. in the staircase who was just like, like had so much hubris and was just making up fake experiments <laughs> and like. You know, I mean, have all of this guy's cases been reopened, uh, thrown out? Like, what is the status of that? Does anyone know? Yeah, so some have, where essentially his determinations were critical to the case. You know, here, as we kind of noted in the episode, it's fairly straightforward. We have these fatal gunshot wounds. Those were the cause of death. And so there's not really a question about whether his reliability undermines our confidence in the verdict. But in other cases where you're looking at things like what actually is the cause of death, it's disputed, or the timeline of death based upon what happens to the body after death, those cases have been challenged successfully. Hmm. 
Well, I promise if I ever become a district attorney and I find out that my medical examiner is crazy, I will try to use somebody else to do uh, my testifying in court. I promise. I mean, I'm never going to, that's never going to happen. But it just seems to me like that would be bad for you. I mean, this is the thing that happens over and over and over again when you talk about these cases. This guy had a reputation. It seems like everyone knew that he was, you know. Yeah. Off the rails, and they just kept using him as a witness in cases. Like despite that, because it was a, there was no one else. Was that the problem? I mean, no. it also could jeopardize your legit cases too if you're a prosecutor. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's always my question. It's like, why would you want to use someone that who's this unreliable, giving the defendant like the grounds potentially for an appeal? I mean, look, his defense was like, look, I I conduct like 500 autopsies a year on average. And so, you know, 30 or 40 botched ones in the course of tens of thousands of autopsies is I'm still doing pretty well. <laughs> that was his defense. But also, you know, they have these people, they cultivate relationships. And sometimes a medical examiner can be useful to give also a prosecutor the results he wants. There's that mm. too. So, I mean, like, you know, and these are the cases we know about. I'm sure there's many, many more cases from his career that we will never know about. Right. It's the season for beautiful flowers. Okay, well, actually, the truth is that season is all year long. If you are someone like me who loves to have beautiful, fresh flowers in their home, but hates the fact that you end up spending so much money and they die off on you in a matter of days. Well, Books is a total game changer. Books, and that's short for bouquets, are sustainably grown and cut fresh from the world's finest eco-friendly farms, even farms that, by the way, are on the side of volcanoes. They're sourced directly, so your flowers stay fresher longer. I got a beautiful bouquet of books about, I don't know, five days ago, and they still are vibrant and fresh and beautiful. And I had a dinner party this past weekend and everybody loved them. So yeah, I'll continue to get them for me and get them for people I love. And for the folks who want to have a friendlier addition and welcome to their home, the Books Company's real farm fresh reeds are the answer. They'll look gorgeous on your door. They make a beautiful gift and there's no better way to give thanks than with a book. Books also provides wedding and corporate packages that allow you to save up to 80% versus traditional florists. So get 25% off your order today from the Books company if you use the code UNDISCLOSED. You know good things come in flower packages. Celebrate life's moments with farm fresh books. To get 25% off your first order, go to books.com, that's B-O-U-Q-S dot com slash undisclosed, and get 25% off your first order with the code undisclosed. Once more, that's B-O-U-Q-S, books.com slash undisclosed, and get 25% off your first order with the code undisclosed. Now, Robbie, can you remind us before we talk about uh, the Spurlock murder, the facts of that case and how Krofsik was involved? I mean, you say he was able to get both a false confession and false evidence to match that confession. Can you just remind us briefly of the facts? Because I really want to dig into these questions around Krofsik. Yeah. So when Krofsik joined the TBI in 1998, this cold case came across his desk and he's like, oh, I got this. Um, it was a, the case was like the I think it was five years old at the time, but this woman, uh, Spurlock, she was killed one night and her, her son found her body the next morning, um, in the trailer they lived in together. And, uh, this man who lived in, uh, a neighboring trailer, oh my God, I can't remember his name now. Oh, Selby. what was the guy's name? Selby. Thank you so much. <laughs> Selby. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There oh. she goes. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so Selby had, he was originally a witness because he had told the police and there was no testifying because nobody had been arrested for this crime, but, um, that the night that she was allegedly killed, he had walked past her trailer and she, he saw her arguing with two men and he described them. He said one was like a big guy and he had tattoos. He described the car and he, then he moved along and he, he just remembered seeing that. Well, when Crossett got the case, he's like, well, this means Selby was the last one to see her alive. And it just so happened that Selby around that time got picked up for a DUI. So Krofsik jumped on it, went to the jail, started questioning him. First time he questions him, Selby gives him the same story he gave years ago. But as he keeps questioning him, he goes back second, third. We don't know how many times exactly because nobody can get a hold of the case files. Selby uh, confesses. He confesses and he, in one of his confessions. He says, I remember I was trying to come on to her. I wanted to have sex with her and she refused me. And so I went into a rage. I don't remember anything after that except for walking out of the trailer with a knife in my hand. And then I threw the knife on top of the roof of one of the other trailers as I was running off. 
So Croft like, start, you know, does a search of the trailer park and, you know, like magic, he finds this knife. Except then a year later, the district attorney's like, oh, none of the forensics match him. It wasn't Cell B. Mm. And they drop the charges. And the only reason I even know about this case is because it was widely reported in the Herald Citizen. Because after that confession, Selby then took it back and was like, I was pressured. I made it up. You know, I, you know, he started maintaining his innocence and his attorney was arguing for that. What's interesting to me is given kind of the track record of some of these people involved, I don't know. I wonder why they really dropped the charges. They kind of didn't have to. They had a murder weapon. They had this guy who confessed. They probably could have prosecuted him and won that conviction. So I've always kind of been curious about what made them change their minds about doing it. I don't know. But clearly it was a false confession. Yeah. Which means that knife also, like, how does it appear unless <laughs> a cross like, plants it? What was the timing? What was the difference in timing between this and the Klesnikow case? Same year. Same year. So this was like, this, we're, not, we're not talking about something like that he may have done in a decade difference. You know, this is like contemporaneous somewhat with this case we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, Rabia, it's like, it's difficult when, you know, I look at the, you know, the reporting and work you're doing and you, you know, you say in the episode, like you're not saying that Krofsik planted evidence of the bullets, but there's reason to wonder whether he might have. That was like the point you were making, right? I think the point I'm really making is that I see no other reasonable explanation at this point. I'll be honest, right. I really don't. Because if you look at the timeline of the of everything that happened to the Heron Farm from the time that Joel Brown and um, Judy Wallace reported, they reported all this happening, the shooting happening, even though it happened on August 2nd. They reported on the 20th, okay, of right, August. Right. We have documentation that on the very next day, the TBI conducted a search that they were not authorized to do. I think they realized, oops, we messed up. We got to ask permission. A couple of days later on the 24th, they call and ask permission. And then in further records, they kind of erase that that other thing happened. And they say, you know, we'd like permission. So then, uh, but then they tell, you know, Mike Heron that they're going to, they'd like to search the property. They don't tell him when. And so there's just kind of like no, nobody knows when it's going to be searched. And so for those bullets to appear there at the second search where it, they weren't there at all beforehand, I just, I couldn't understand it until I kind of put together the picture and the description and the possibility and the Spurlock case. It just, I don't know, it kind of, the pieces fit for me. Right, right. Madeline, the, the Herring Farm reminds me, you know, I've been calling it on his addendum, I've been calling it the Red Herring Farm, because yeah. as far as I'm concerned, like, there really is no demonstrable connection at all between the murders and this place. Right. But it's like, it became part of the story, and so all the stuff had to fit. It reminded me of that Curtis Flowers walk, you know, that like, People saw him here, they saw him here, they saw him here, and that means, you know, that connects him to the crime scene in some way, but it really was about crafting a story, potentially, that that they and they could corroborate that, and so then that walk became part of the evidence in the case, the same way the Heron Farm is, like, part of this case in a way that when you just look at it through the eye of, like, what does this farm actually have to do with this murder? Like, it really doesn't. I mean, that's what it reminds me of. What about, what do you think about the whole Heron Farm setting and all the evidence being like that being the key part of the case? I mean, to me, it seems like like the Heron Farm is even like further afield from like, like the case than Curtis and his route, because at least with the Curtis Flowers case, like Curtis told the cops what he said he was doing that morning. And it was not that he was walking all around town. So at minimum, you can say, okay, well, he lied about that. Doesn't mean he committed the murder, but if, if we believe these route witnesses, then that means Curtis is lying about where he was that day. That doesn't look good. Whereas like the Heron Farm is like, you know, the, I guess the, the biggest connection to the crime scene is this like ballistic science, which we know isn't real science. So there's really no connection, right. like no, at least that we know of between the Heron Farm and this murder at this house. And so, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, I get why it's important in terms of like investigating the case, but I will admit that every time I hear it, I'm like, I almost don't care about it because it's no. like, it's, yeah, it's, it's not connected. No, it's not. <laughs> I just want to say one more thing about the coincidence of all this happening on the 25th, the, the burning happening on the 20, the evidence showing up on the 25th conveniently in time for the search the next day. You know, we have a put together an extensive timeline of the entire investigation yeah, so we have this whole timeline on a spreadsheet, and this, it's it's not just day by day; it's often hour by hour. So we'll have that you know the TBI interviewed this this person at this time, then they interviewed this person. So we have a, we know what they did almost every day. 
But on the August 25th, the day of the burning on the Heron Farm, there's nothing. There is no record at all of anything that Krofsik has done that day in terms of the investigation. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. it's odd. Yeah, no, I think that that's, I mean, it, it would be less reasonable if you didn't have this other case where he planted evidence. My question would be, my critical question would be, if you're going to plant evidence somewhere, why plant it at this other place and not just like outside of Greg's house? You know, like that would be my like question about it. But then you realize that they did construct this whole narrative around this place being important. So it had to have been this place. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, when they got the tip from Judy and Joe, I think, you know, and they're like, oh, there were gas cans and there was just this weirdness and there was this red car and oh, Keith has a red car. And, and oh, Greg had the red car on the day <laughs> of the shooting. You know, I think they were just like, and and this and he's buddies with Mike Heron. I think for them, it makes made sense for them. And also it showed premeditation. Like, you know, if they were able to prove that Greg was doing all this stuff on this farm for weeks, you know, before and after and all that, that's premeditation right there. And it's a cover up also. So planting evidence outside of Greg's house would have been a lot harder. A trailer yeah. park's a busy place. Yeah, yeah. Colin, what are your thoughts about this timeline and whether or not this theory of Rabia's, you know, has some legs? Yeah, I mean, I think based on what Rabia just described, it has legs. I mean, obviously, we don't have everything there to be able to connect the dots. But I mean, it's certainly, I think, you know, from what we presented on the episode and from what Rabia just described, there are questions there and it would require some further investigation. But I, I certainly think that it holds water as a theory. Yeah. Well, one very cinematic moment in the podcast this week, which, you know, just made me think of like, this would be such a great moment in a film. Um, so Marlon Ray says at some point that he saw the guy that he saw at the Heron farm uh, doing the burning in the courtroom during the Greg Lance case. And he was dressed like, I think the expression was goody boy, which is really fun. I'm going to start using that in my own life now. <laughs> um, and you kind of put it together that perhaps the person he was talking about was not some person sitting in the gallery in the courtroom, but Krofsik. Uh Does Krofsik look like that description, do you think? I mean, you, you said so. You posted the photo, but I'd love sort of for you to flesh that out a little bit. Like, do you really think it could be Krofsik that they were talking about and that they were saying, you know, he was saying, I saw him in the courtroom but not just saying who it was because he was trying to just lead people in that direction without being the one to say it. Is that what you think happened? You know, I mean, like, we've been trying to figure out who this person could possibly be. So Brian and Marlon both described when they were at the farm in their sta earlier statement saying that they saw somebody who was Mexican-looking. Remember this phrase came up previously? That's not right. my phrase. That was their phrase. Somebody not our phrase. Right. Somebody who has a darker complexion. Now, Greg doesn't really look like that. He's really pale. Um, so we've been trying to figure out who that could be. But then in his letter, which came a couple years after the trial, he was like, uh, actually, if a few, yeah, but I think four or five years after the trial, he gave a much more specific description. He's like, you know, and he didn't say for sure that was definitely the guy. He said that he, when he looked at him, he, and he wrote this in two letters that he's like, he kept thinking, I think that's the guy. It looks like the guy that I think I saw. And then when he got off the witness stand, him and Brian talked about it because Brian had testified mm. as well. And he said, we both were like, wasn't that the guy who was doing the burning? And so they also testified a couple of years after what had happened. The trial was two years later after the whole incidences at the Heron Farm. But the, it's very straightforward, his uh, description. You know, olive complexion, uh, pop marks, wireframe glasses, dark hair. The Edward James almost is who he's describing. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like it. <laughs> the only thing that he gets that does not match Krofsik's description is that he said he's about six feet tall. He says in a letter, about six feet tall. Krofsik, from what we know, was not six feet, maybe five, eight, just kind of average or below average height. He wasn't that tall. But again, it's two years after the fact. And in the courtroom, Krofsik is probably seated. So I don't know if that made a difference because they didn't describe him as tall in the original statements from a while from, from before. That was only in the, the letters years later. So that could be something that maybe they just got wrong or mis like he estimated incorrectly but you, I mean the picture's there you guys can look I, I don't know to me it seems pretty close Madeline is this not a very cinematic idea that it would have been Krofsik that they were identifying in this way can't you just imagine the scene in the film about this where it's oh, like absolutely. it yeah. was him the whole time although I did wonder like and I think this gets talked about in this episode um 
Marlon Ray knows Kropsik, right? Like by name? He he should know him at least by face if he doesn't remember his exact name. He easily could have said it was the TBI agent who came to my house. Yeah, and so, like, you were wondering, like, in this episode, like, you know, that is kind of strange. Like, why wouldn't he just say this? And I guess, like, the argument is that he felt, like, worried or something. I mean, I don't know. To me, that's, like, the the one thing that's sort of holding this back. It would be more credible if he was like, well, actually, it's Kropsik, um, or yeah. it's the TBI guy. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. I mean, for months and months, that's been the thing. I'm like, it can't be Kropsik because, you know, he would have just said it. Hmm. But, you know... Maybe he wouldn't have, you know, I'll just today, I'm not even kidding. I swear to God, today I got a letter from an inmate, also a potential witness in the Greg Lance case, who wrote to me and said, please, I'm begging you, give me 30 months. I cannot tell you what you need to know. I have stuff that will help Greg, but I don't want to get killed in here. Hmm. And, um, and so today I made the decision that when we talk about him in the final episode, we're not going to give his actual name. And Marlon Ray also was writing from prison. So there are some real life concerns here. Um, So maybe, you know, I just, I don't know, but I just don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility um, for that to have been the case. The one thing that occurred to me was context, right? So he met Krofsik in the context of Krofsik being like law enforcement, right? I don't know if he wore a uniform or not, probably not, but like, you know, he had probably like an official car and that was the context. And then seeing somebody, you know, doing something like burning, it's hard to... You know, if Krofsik went out there and wasn't wearing his navy polyester suit or whatever, but was wearing jeans and a sweater, he may have seen the same person, but not, you know, kind of put the two together. I don't know. I mean, there were a few. I definitely had questions, but it was definitely a very interesting point. If I remember correctly, I think in one of the statements they said the guy at the burn pit they saw wearing a baseball hat, too. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes it could be that. It could also be a couple years have passed. It could also be if you've got people who have all kinds of substance and alcohol abuse issues. I mean, like, there could be a lot of different reasons. Right. But, yeah, I don't know. I love Bullen brand sheets because they are some of the most comfortable, softest, beautifully designed sheets I have ever owned. And they are the reason that other family members, I'm not going to name who, and I often argue over the few sets that we have. I kind of hoard them for myself, to be honest. And now that winter is upon us for a limited time, you can get their luxury flannel bedding, which to be honest, I haven't tried yet, but I can't wait. I'm ordering it this week. The luxury flannel bedding keeps you cool, sleepers warm, and because they breathe, they keep you warm, sleepers cool. Now, I happen to be a cold sleeper. I'm always freezing. My husband is always sweating. Bowen brand sheets are perfect for both of us. Shipping is always free. You can try them out for 30 days risk-free. And right now you get $50 off your first set of sheets of bowlandbranch.com with promo code undisclosed. I also want to let you know, they come beautifully packaged. Like I have never bought sheets that are, I mean, it was like opening up. It's a beautiful gift. I mean, they're such a great gift for the holidays, an anniversary, a wedding, birthday, whatever, you name it. They're just, they're just beautiful. So get some for yourself, get some for somebody you love, get $50 off right now if you go to bowlandbranch.com and use the promo code undisclosed. That's bowl, B-O-L-L, and branch.com with the promo code undisclosed to get $50 off your order today. Colin, there were uh, some other suspects sort of talked about in this episode, kind of in the context of the fact that they weren't checked out. Like, I don't think... Um, as intrigued as I am, especially by the uh, disgruntled property buyer who had also pulled a gun <laughs> on Victor. I right. mean, was the larger point here that the law enforcement should have looked at them? Or are we going to, do you know if we're going to be hearing more about them as suspects? What did you think about this cast of characters, Colin? Yeah, I mean, I do think, unless Robbie has more information I'm not aware of, that these were more presented as, oh, look at all these other routes that the law enforcement did not pursue. And I'm not aware, and again, Robbie, correct me if I'm wrong, of us having anything more significant that points in the direction of one of them as the perpetrator. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) What do you think, Madeline? Yeah, I mean, I didn't hear any evidence linking any of these people to the crime. And also, you know, when you have such a violent act, you know, these people shot in their home, the whole house set on fire, like, you're looking for, like, some motive that seems like it matches that. And so, like, a property dispute, is that really... I mean, I guess anything's possible, but um, but there wasn't any evidence that I heard that was pointing to these people doing it. Right, right. I mean, I do think that somebody who had expressed an intention to kill a person, 
True. Uh, and a prior episode <laughs> okay. would be somebody in the frame when that person actually shows up killed. I mean, that's just my very amateur take on it. But, you know, who am I to say? Who am I to say what law enforcement yeah. should do? I mean, I will say that that matter was settled. I was going to say it is clear. Like one thing that's helpful about learning about these people, though, is that, you know, it's clear that this couple had a lot of people who are not happy with them. And so. Um, you know, Greg in that way is like one of a number of people who had disputes with um, this couple. It would be far different if he was like literally the only person who had ever had a disagreement with them. But Madeline, as a listener, I I wonder if you get the same impression I do. I get the impression that Greg's so-called, you know, dispute with them he kind of went into this deal with his eyes wide open. You know, he knew that these people had, you know, dirty dealings with property, you know, transactions before. So he kind of lawyered up when he was going into the deal. He was, you know, able to civilly set meetings with Victor at his house to inspect the property. It's not like he was, you know, uh, avoiding him, you know, making nasty phone calls. Like, we don't hear any of that. It just sounds like a business transaction gone the way that Greg feared it would. Um, it, he wasn't like pulling guns on him, you know, in other right. instances. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, I, yeah, I think that's definitely important to say. <laughs> now, Robbie, you said that that matter was settled, the other gun guy? Yeah, the Parks matter, um, the Klesnikows dropped their eviction suit, and but we don't know exactly why. We don't know if they just came to some kind of settlement outside of court or if they just gave up thinking... This guy's probably right. We cannot actually produce the documents. You know, a lot of their deals were just kind of like, you know, not well, I think, you know, documented. And I, and, and so that guy was like, well, prove that you, <laughs> prove every allegation you're making. I, I don't know why, but they did drop the eviction suit. And so he actually didn't end up getting evicted. So I don't know if he, you could argue whether or not he had much of an incentive. Um, but as, as far as anybody who's ever physically threatened violence against Victor, he seemed like kind of the only one that um, there's a record of. Hmm. Okay. Madeline, do you have any questions about what you've heard so far for Rabia and Colin? I have a question about the um, the Spurlock murder or about the, I guess, the case against Shelby. Do we know like why exactly the case against Shelby was dropped? Like, did the prosecutors say like, we don't think he did it or did they, cause like I, that line was kind of vague to me. Yeah, so apparently what the DA told, or what the DA's office told the media was that we're dropping this because we have spoken to a new witness who has given us information telling, you know, that I, I suppose they corroborated or whatever, for some reason they thought was credible, is connecting someone else to the crime. The problem is nobody was ever prosecuted or charged with the murder after they dropped charges against Selby. So... I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've just, I'm curious myself to figure out what happened then. Um, but no, I mean, that, that was all they said. They said somebody else, we have other information basically telling us it's not him. Um, that, mm. and then I guess they tested the forensics to the extent they could. They didn't find anything connecting him to the crime, I guess. I don't know. And then we but, don't have the transcripts from um, Crap Six interviews of Selby. No, we don't. We don't. Or even if they were recorded at all, it, we just don't know. I have no idea. I mean, like, that's a case file that, I mean, I haven't, uh, frankly, tried to get, and the folks who have dug a little bit on the case apparently have not been able to get, but something I still want to look into. It's also hard, harder, unless you're a Tennessee resident, you don't have access to certain files. Like, you cannot take advantage of the Tennessee Public Records Acts. It's kind of crazy, so you have to do it through a conduit. Um, but no, there's just nothing there. It's kind of like they dropped the charges, and that was the end of it. All right, so I want to throw something in here that a listener, Gary, sent in that I think is interesting. I want to know your thoughts. Uh, Gary says, regarding the burn marks on the cord and specifically that those marks were even, oh, and specifically that they were even placed. I think he meant evenly placed. Guns in the maintenance of are oiled, Gary says. If the cord was wrapped around the gun and thus absorbed oil from the barrel, the result could be oil spots. I think he means those would be evenly placed because of the wrapping, which then attracted dirt. So I guess my question is, do we know for sure those were burn marks? Or could they have been spots from oil uh, that the rope absorbed after being wrapped around the gun? Yeah, no, we have no idea if they're burn marks. I mean, in fact, I'm almost... 
of the mind that if they had been burn marks, definitely a lab would have noted that, right? In their examination of the rope. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it's not mentioned in any of the lab reports, you know, have them having examined the rope, they never once say that it is has burn marks, you know, to me, it almost seems like it's not, but I, I don't know. What do you think, Colin? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, you would expect more explicit writing if in fact they had a strong conclusion that it was burn marks. And I don't know in terms of Gary's question, I, I we'd probably want to submit it to a forensic examiner to see whether that's a possibility. But I mean, it seems to pass the laugh test for me. Yeah. I actually didn't quite get that, what you just said. So the burn marks on the rope are an assumption made by the prosecution. They're not like definitely burns because that's confusing if, if that's the case. Because the whole that is sort of like the linchpin piece of evidence here, right? So-called physical evidence is that the rope matches the rope allegedly found that matched the thing at the Greggs with the fireworks and all that. Like that is a linchpin piece of evidence in the case. That was very specific. I know what I just said about as specific as I think it's been presented by oh, yeah. the state in this case. That was some, their major piece of evidence that they're like unquestionably ties. And the reason they said it ties is was because of these burn marks. But the timeline on the rope evidence is this. They go to Greg's house. They find this rope hanging in a tree. They collect it. It doesn't have anything on it. They already found the gun with a rope on it. And then they question Keith not long after they um, searched Greg's uh, yard and, and took the rope from the tree. And I think they were like, well, we've got this rope. It's got these marks on it. And we've got this other rope from his house that doesn't have anything on it. Do you think it could be the same rope? And Keith was like, maybe. Is there any explanation of these burn marks? And then he's like, oh, yeah, I this 4th of July, I did this firework thing. And so maybe that's how, because the whole burn thing, it doesn't appear really in the files at no point until like kind of the trial. Um, or I think after Keith's statement saying that the rope that I used to rig the fireworks got burn marks on it. Hmm. But so I feel like for them, there was like, it has to be burn marks because that's the only way that we can prove it was Keith's rope because it's a very specific identifier because he used it for the fireworks. Right. Um, but but the defense never challenges it and nobody questions the lab expert on the stand saying, hey, were, are those actual burn marks? And they had the rope right there in front of them. They could have just touched yeah. it. <laughs> Isn't it weird, Madeline, that they would be trying to tie these burn marks on a rope from a murder weapon where there was a, a crime with a fire they would be trying to tie those burns not to the fire where the murder was committed, but to this fireworks incident from like months before. That has always struck me as kind of weird. Yeah, that I agree. That is odd. I mean, it seems like it would be more important to say this, to use it to say this is the murder weapon because it has burn marks because it was at a fire. Right. Yeah. And you can't really say, you know, you can't like double down and say like, well, part of the burn marks are from the fire and part of them are from, you know, it just starts to look ridiculous. Right. Well, <laughs> I think we know from listening to cases on Undisclosed that looking ridiculous is not necessarily a disqualifier for some of the um, evidence that prosecutors are willing to put forward. In but you know, and another cases. thing about this is, like, if you're going to make the argument that this came from fireworks, fireworks don't go off in, like, you know, carefully measured intervals, <laughs> you know. As we heard on the podcast. As we heard. It's a crazy random explosion. And if they were to leave burn marks on on whatever they're tied to, I'm sure they would look random and crazy and scattered all over, not like in these very precise in fact. So this this uh, listener's theory makes more sense to me that that the rope was wrapped around something and then one part of it got burned somehow or had some mark left on it somehow. So when you unraveled it, it's at regular intervals. That makes so much more sense. Right, right. So we have another listener question from Emily. Uh, she says, uh, confesses that it's an extremely nosy question. But she says she saw in a court document that Keith testified that he and Becky... This is news to me, by the way, that he and Becky had sex on their porch the night of the murders. Not long after the murders, Becky became pregnant. Uh, Emily wants to know if it has been confirmed that Greg is the biological father of Becky's daughter. Yeah, so um, Emily is has an idea of what she thought she read. <laughs> There's actually testimony, but it wasn't by Keith. It was Eric Tanner. Who testified? Eric Tanner was the guy who served in National Guard with Greg. He was home that night. He's the one who said he woke up the night of the murders and he saw Greg and Becky eating at the table and asked Greg what time it was. He went back to sleep. Eric testifies on the stand that him and Becky slept together that night, but Eric does not say that. Wait, in that any... Eric that Eric did or that Keith did? Eric that says Eric that he did. did. Eric okay. said that night he was home. 
that Keith and his girlfriend Kay dropped Becky off at the house, that she was incredibly drunk, that she was, I mean, the way he testified, he said that she was barely, you know, functioning drunk, which also obviously would raise any questions about consent if she, if they really did have sex and that they had sex that night. And because she was upset that Greg was out, he testifies to this, but it doesn't actually appear in any of his prior statements, um, from what we know. And also Becky has no recollection of this and says that it didn't happen. She was also questioned about this. It didn't happen. Now, whether or not it happened is completely irrelevant to the crime, which is why I didn't want to spend time on it. And I mean, our episodes are packed with so much stuff, but has like, as far as I'm concerned, it's not relevant to what we're trying right. to figure out, which is who killed the Klesnik house. Right. Um, and given the fact that personally, I think it was, it was kind of this incendiary mean spirited thing that Eric wanted to say on the stand. I don't know why, maybe because the state wanted him to, or maybe they wanted to turn the husband and wife against each other or what, but it just wasn't something that Becky said happened. And so as far as I'm concerned, whether it did or didn't is not at issue in this case. Now, the other thing this listener said that she thought it was odd that Greg's daughter was, her, you could hear her voice in that one clip we heard when Keith was doing the burned rope. That's because um, Becky's daughter, um, their, their daughter, her name's Rebecca, her grandmother raised her for much of her life. And so Keith was at Joyce's house, Greg's mother's house, to do the experiment. And mm. so Rebecca lived there, and that's why she was just running around in the yard when it was happening. Because Keith, Keith was at their house. Right. So there wasn't some other connection there that would be irrelevant anyway. But uh, it's, it's good that you were able to clear that up. Keith didn't even take care of his own kids. Forget somebody else's kids. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, Robbie, what can listeners expect to hear on next week's episode of Undisclosed? Yeah, next week's episode um, is going to be, I think, one of the most interesting ones because we're going to talk about the prime suspects who we really haven't looked at at any length. Um, it's not that we haven't heard about them at all. We have heard about them briefly in this case, uh, but we're going to go deep into their story and who they are and their family history. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Rabia, thanks so much for joining me for this week's addendum. As usual, it's always fascinating to talk to you about this story. Thank you, Rebecca. And Madeline Barron, what a pleasure getting your insights into this case, hearing your questions. And I'd love to know more about what you think. So if you could tweet about it or send us a note if you have questions listening going forward that we can include in addendum, that would be awesome. Thank you so much, Madeline. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Colin Miller, always a pleasure to talk to you, especially hearing you just like pull some legal knowledge out of the air that I'm certain you did not have sitting in front of you on a printout. <laughs> it's always a pleasure and your brain continues to astonish me. Yeah, good talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to the Undisclosed Addendum and the Greg Lance series. You can follow the show at Undisclosed Pod on social media, and you can ask questions for future Addendum episodes on Twitter and Facebook. Just please use the hashtag UDAddendum. Remember, Undisclosed sponsors make it possible for this team to continue doing their important work. So please support the sponsors you hear in the show, buy their products, and use their promo code UNDISCLOSED, or whatever the promo code happens to be for that sponsor. Our executive producer is Methel Telhan. Audio production for the addendum is done by Hannah McCarthy. Our theme song is by Patrick Cortez. If you want to hear more of me, check out my true crime and pop culture review podcast, Crime Writers On, or listen to These Are Their Stories, The Law and Order, and SVU podcast. Special thanks to my partner in crime and life, Kevin Flynn, for everything you are doing to make it possible for me to host this series. And also thanks to Rabia, Susan, and Colin, who continue to make Undisclosed really, really fun and fascinating to work on. On behalf of everyone on the Undisclosed team, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Madeline, before we sign out, can we? Can I just say one thing? And I swear this is true, Madeline. Yesterday, I was filling out this thing. I, I don't want to talk about what it is, but this is a potential project somebody proposed. And they said, who would your dream team, investigative dream team be for like a criminal case? And I was like, Madeline Barron, <laughs> number one. <laughs> I just want you to know that. <laughs> yeah. Madeline Barron, Parker Yesko, and Will Craft. <laughs> and Samara Freemark. Just like put them Natalie in a Blonsky. box. Natalie Jablonski. Exactly. Raymond Tungakar. Put them in a box. A road is just a road, but a Jeep SUV isn't just an SUV. Come see for yourself at the Jeep Start Something New sales event. 
During Owner Appreciation Month, finance get $3,750 total cash allowance on the purchase of select 2020 Jeep Compass Latitude 4x4 models in dealer stock the longest. On oldest 20% inventory of 2020 Jeep Compass Latitude models as of 1-3-2020 in dealer stock. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 2-3-2020. Jeep is a registered trademark. Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space Space. Space. to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped boat neck sweaters. The Container Store Alpha Sale is here with 30% off Alpha and installation. The Container Store, where space comes from.